0: Well, with this many people on, it looks like it's taking uh, spike quite a while to get things started. Does anybody see in their top left-hand corner that the uh, the recording has started? Because here it still says SANGA US. Yeah,
1: I think we're
0: okay. live. I think it's recording. Okay. It's cool. so It's only on this computer that it doesn't show up. All right, so let's assume that the recording is going on then. All right, so. uh, uh, Scott, uh, you had uh, mentioned something about uh, mastering the jhanas, and that is a very, very typical Western viewpoint. And that um, I think, and in fact, that it's been around for many, many centuries. Because it seems to be more the attitude of those who read the Vasudhi Maka than those who actually read the suttas, that the Vasudhi Magga turned something that was very simple and very easy into something very heavy duty, very lofty. And so when Buddhists get involved with the Vasudhi Magga, they kind of lose out on the teachings of the Buddha. And yet they're confused because they think that what's in the Vasudhi Maga is really, really deep Buddhism. Actually, no, it's just a grave that Buddha was buried in. <laughs> and we don't have to go dig it up. So um, starting off with the point that um Bhikhi Buddha Dasa talks about Nirvana for everyone. Now, what that means, then, is is that nirvana is not all of that special if everyone can do it. And, in fact, another way of even thinking about it is everyone does do it. That if you run across someone who has no peace, no relaxation, 24 hours a day, they're uptight, upset, they can't sleep. That kind of person is going to be dead soon. Okay. Everybody has the ability to chill out. One of the moments of chilling out is when you sit down uh, at a restaurant or better still, let us say sitting down to the dinner table where the food is already on the table. And mom calls everybody to the table and everybody sits down. And as you're sitting down, you sit down and relax. The food is here. Everything is fine. <sighs> and then you look with delight over the smorgasbord board of the food on the table. And that's when the jhana ends and greed begins. I want that food. <laughs> All right. But we often miss those little nibbana moments. And what we're practicing in Anapanasati is uh, a kind of a twofold skill that's based upon a set of other skills. And that twofold skill is the ability to get yourself into a good, happy state. Quickly. And then the second skill is to be able to stay and let that state linger. And when you develop those two skills so that you can get into that state easily and let it linger while you're in that state, now the mind is fit to work and is capable of doing the kind of observations that that the Mahasi method uh, would speak of But what happens is is that people go into that mode of noting or observation before they get into a state of relaxation and the mind is not fit for work. And that is what we call dry insult, the dry method. Now, the the point about the dry method is, is that it's not always every moment dry that in fact, people do have some good results in it because from time to time they do fall into first jhana. They can see things clearly and then they do have some insight and then they pop back right back out of jhana again. So rather than thinking about that jhana is a long term state. that that is mastered. A better way of thinking about it is a toy to play with. Sometimes you pick it up and set it down and sometimes you pick it up and let it linger, and you set it down, but it comes and it goes back and forth. Now, if you understand the five factors of the jhana, the first jhana, then you can recognize then that the other jhanas are all built upon the base of the first jhana. An example that I would use is in order for you to make a one note on the violin, you have to have both the violin and one string. So that would be the first John at is that you've got to have the violin. You've got to have the bass and the neural and the bridge and the uh, nuts and the, uh, the neck, all of that stuff for the violin so the violin can make one note. And then the second and the third and the fourth jhana is merely adding another strength. Or another way of thinking about it is is that the first jhana is all the work that there is. All of your right effort is going to be to get yourself into the first jhana. And then the other jhanas are just a little bit more relaxation. So that's another way of thinking about it is is that uh, the first jhana is going to get the mind uh, into about 90% of relaxation. The second jhana is going to be about 94%. The third jhana is going to be like 97%. The fourth jhana is going to be like 99%. And then while you're in the fourth jhana, you can become completely relaxed. And yet many people think that all oh, the goal is to Fort John. I got to get myself into Fort John and they want to leapfrog out of the first John rather than recognizing that, no, that's a base. The base camp. So you could think of it like climbing Mount Everest, that um, that there's two ways to do it. One is to set up a base camp below the summit. That's a safe place. And then you go and you get all your supplies and maybe it takes the Sherpas five, six, seven, eight, ten trips to establish that base camp. And once the base camp is set and the uh, uh, the hikers are acclimated to the base, then they can approach the summit. So the first John is going to be like the base camp. Or the first John is going to be like the home position or the first jhana is going to be like the violin itself, rather than the strings on the violin. And when you see it like that, then you can understand that we actually are in a state of nirvana when we're in the first jhana, because the word nirvana means, uh, in fact, all of the language of the Buddha, the Pali language, were words that were already commonly used in the Pali language and everyone who spoke that language and lived in India, when they heard the Buddha, they heard it in their own natural language. And because of that, they understood the words. Now that we have mostly just English translations of of the Dhamma in the old Pali language, we don't know what the words mean so much. And so that's most of the confusion. And so here we are digging down the Mariana Trench, thinking that we're reaching to the summit of Mount Everest mm-hmm. because we're going in the wrong direction, because we've gotten confused by reading the directions that are in the Pali And a clear example of that are words like nirvana, which you think would be a, a, an exalted state that many people often, even think of nirvana is like a heavenly place well heaven is not even a place heaven is not a place heaven is a state of mind and um nirvana is also just a state of relaxation just a state of coolness that in the time of the buddha everybody knew the word nibbana because they used it on a regular basis When the food comes out of the oven, it's too hot to eat, and it needs to nabana. It needs to cool off. How many people have ever been served food? I get it regularly. It's hot off the grill, and it's hot. You can't pick it up. I think that's one of the reasons why we in our Western society use what we would call utensils or silverware dinner, you know, like knives and forks and spoons. Why would we have a knife and a fork and a spoon if we can eat the food with our hand? The answer is it's too hot to touch. How many of you ever burned uh, the roof of your mouth on a hot pizza? (laughs) Everybody, huh? Right? How many of you have burned the roof of your mouth or other parts of the body with your bad attitude? (sighs) Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's what we're really looking at is how can we let this hot attitude cool off. And that's the real teaching of the Buddha is to chill, baby, chill. Just cool off. And we have that language in our own culture. They had that language in the time of the Buddha also, and everybody understood what it meant. But now we use the word nibbana, and it's become a magical word. And so has jhana. The word jhana was a typical word that was used. Uh, you could also uh, go so far as to say that the word jhana then would be equivalent to the word that we would have in English as relax. But let us say 10,000 years from now, someone's going to be reading an English language book that has the word relax in it, and they don't have a clue about what relax means. So they make it magical. (laughs) So we can also say it like this, is that uh, jhana is either a state of mind that you're in in the moment, or it's a concept that you're thinking about and wanting so when you say mastering the jhanas that's a clear indication that it's something that you don't have and that you want and that's a clearer case then a clear sign that you're not in a jhana when you want jhana because you want something that you don't have now the buddha makes it very clear um, in his long classical definition of the word dukkha. When the first noble truth is described in the text, it talks about uh, old age, sickness, and death. I don't see any of you dead here. The only one that's old is me. But you've all been sick at least one time in your life. How many of you have never been sick? Didn't think so. All right. So you understand that when you're sick, that's a form of dukkha because you don't like it. So in your case, Robert, or excuse me, Scott, by um, talking about mastering the jhana, that saying that you don't have the jhana and because you don't have the jhana and you want it, that's almost a kind of sickness. And you want to be well by having the first jhana. Okay, so going back to that definition of dukkha, old age, sickness and death are the three things that um, will always for sure bring on dissatisfaction.
2: I I was like, I don't know, I guess I'm talking about a different type of jhana because other people have kind of different criteria for jhana that you do. Um, so you just mean like being relaxed and peaceful? Is that your criteria for a jhana?
0: Actually, the jhana has five factors. It has five factors. The first factor that's absolutely necessary is to be out of desire. Because desire is a hindrance. Okay. That going back to the definition of Dukkha, if we recognize the clear definition of Dukkha, then we'll recognize how to get out of it. And when we recognize that, so the question is old age, sickness and death, then the next three have to do with the way people present themselves when they're in Dukkha. And that is lamentation, grief, despair. And then the Buddha talks about the, the actual causes of it, and that is wanting something that you don't have or having to put up with something that you don't want to put up with. That's the greed and the ill will. Having to put up with something, have to endure things that are hard to endure, like sickness is hard to endure it. So this is actually what suffering is, is uh, or dukkha is being dissatisfied. With whatever is happening right now. So the first thing that we need for the first jhana is just simply being satisfied because well, you guys have been satisfied from time to time your whole life. You know what the word means, but you've also been dissatisfied much of your life and you know what that means too. So getting the mind out of a state of dissatisfaction by getting out of the state of wanting something to change. And so when people are then practicing these hard forms of meditation, they actually do things then that they have to endure, like sitting for long periods of time in a posture that you're not used to and not comfortable in. If you're in a posture that you're really, really comfortable in, then you can stay in that posture for a very, very long time. Well, the cross-legged posture is actually quite comfortable and it's quite stable if you've been doing it your whole life. But in Western society, mostly we can say because of the weather that a young child is picked up off the floor and put into a high chair. And then the rest of his life, we have the children on uh, furniture. Um, there is uh, on MSNBC, there's one of the commentators who has a, a project uh, in Africa of buying desks for the students, thinking that the desks themselves are going to make students better. He would be much better off if he would give them internet access, give them some computers, buy them some books to read, but he's buying desks. And those kids are used and comfortable sitting on the ground. So that's the mentality that we have. And so now uh, the reverse mentality is, is that all in order to practice meditation correctly, we got to go sit on the ground the way that the kids do it in Africa or in India or in Thailand. But these are warm climates to where in fact, the ground is probably the coolest place to sit. Sitting on furniture doesn't give that that contact. In fact, the uh, the funny thing about the dogs, the dogs. Live in the bathroom. Why do the dogs live in the bathrooms? Because it's got a concrete floor and it's got uh, wet. And so actually our bathroom is the coolest room in the house. The dogs know this and they're looking for the cool. And so they go and lay in the bed or actually, excuse me, they lay in on the um, Uh, On the floor in the bathroom where it's cool. So, what you would want to do then when you're practicing jhana is to get yourself in a comfortable posture, a comfortable position that you can maintain. And yet, uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour into a long sit. Western students, the body will become uncomfortable. They'll have leg pains. They'll have back pains. How many of you have ever had any bodily sensations if you've sat for a long period of time? Surely Robert has. Okay, Matt, Todd. Okay. You know that when the body is uncomfortable, you don't like it. It's hard to endure. That is dukkha. The whole point of sitting in meditation is to be free from Dupa and here you're doing things that create it. That's why it's to be mastered according to Scott. It has to be mastered because we're putting way too many roadblocks. We're actually making hindrances rather than eliminating hindrances. So by getting the body very comfortable and very relaxed, that's a a clear sign of going in the right direction. This is very clear from the Anapanasati Sutta. When the Buddha is talking about the body part is to become experienced with knowing the body because you've been investigating the body with the intention of step four of Anapanasati is to get the body to relax. Now, how can you relax if your knees are hurting? But in fact, I know of five guys in my lifetime who can't sit because they tried too hard to master the sitting, thinking that the sitting was what they needed to master. Um, uh, Conte Paolo, an Australian, he just wrote years ago, but he wrote in his book about that he couldn't sit. I know a German monk. There's another one that you probably know and have heard of, and his name is Abante uh, Vila Moromsi. How many of you have heard of Vila Moromsi? Have you ever seen him sit on the floor? Or is he always sitting uh, in a chair? That's the whole point is that uh, uh, he can't sit because it, it causes too much pain. And the reason that it caused too much pain is because he's harmed his knees by working too hard at it. But he's not the only one. Uh, there was one monk here. He's actually a, 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 a Canadian. And he came to watch Soin milk to stay, but he didn't stay long because he couldn't sit with the other monks. But in fact, now he's living alone in um, Australia because he is embarrassed to be around other monks because he can't sit on the floor the way that they do. But they're all Asians, and at least what and Mok, they're all Asians. And so this whole business of sitting on the floor, Westerners, when they see Buddhists doing that kind of stuff, they think, oh, I've got to do that too, because sitting on the floor in a cross-legged upright posture is meditation itself. I mean, look at all the Buddhist statues. Do you ever see a statue of the Buddha sitting in a chair? <laughs> Guess what? They did. There's actually, in, in fact, this is really a, a, a kind of a silly point. In the vasudhimagga Maga, it, see, it has instructions on how to make furniture, how to make a chair out of limbs. Now, why would that instruction be in the Magga if all the people who are reading the Magga still want to sit on the floor? Another point, and that is, is that in the literature um, that is very common, this one paragraph, but it's also in the Anapanasati Sutra, so you can find it easy, where the Buddha says go to the forest, go to a foot of a tree, go to an empty hut and sit down but the word for sitting is not the word cross-legged the way that it's translated out of the Pali into the English the Pali word is actually sitting on a a cushion or on a couch or in a chair so even in the time of the Buddha sitting down didn't necessarily have to be sitting in the cross-legged position This is really valuable for you guys to understand that it's not the posture that you're in that is the meditation. Not the posture of the body anyway. No, it's the posture of the mind. And if the mind is uncomfortable because the body is uncomfortable, then what's the point of practicing like that? So if you're practicing correctly, you're going to be naturally going in and out of jhana Because you're practicing correctly. Then, in fact, you go into jhana just by doing the little things of waking up, looking at what you're doing, taking the right effort, and relaxing. Then you go into the first jhana. And then some thought comes up and you pop back out of the first jhana. Never mind, start again. And so you look at what you're doing, you throw that thought out, you take the right effort to gladden the mind and you go back into a state of jhana. It's a very natural state. Here's another example of it. Though this would be, let us say, not all of the jhana factors, but it's certainly something to indicate. And that is, how many of you can read? You know, you use letters like ABC and you put words together and then you put sentences together. Okay. Basically, there's two ways to read. One way of reading is by uh, becoming interested in something and so you start to read it and as you're reading it you begin to get understanding of what they're talking about and then you begin to think about it the eyes are continuing to move down the page but now we're thinking about what we had already read rather than been reading what the eyes are looking at that's a very interesting point because another way of reading is to start the reading, get your ideas, then continue to read, continue to pay attention to the, uh, the stuff so that the end of the sentence, you know what that sentence means. It's better to read slowly than it is to read fast because we're in a hurry, you know, and you got to read quickly. In fact, they even want to time you how fast can you read? Do you read, you know, 200 words a minute? Do you read 500 words a minute? I would rather read 50 words a minute with full comprehension than 500 words a minute and merely skim. So slowing down your reading to make sure that you understand it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. And when you get to the new paragraph, you know that this paragraph is going to follow on from the previous paragraph. But I assume that many of you have gotten to the next paragraph or the next page and says, wait a minute. I don't even know what this paragraph is about because I didn't do the previous paragraph well, right? Here's another example of that on a bigger scale. Uh, There was one math class that I took in university. I think it was on calculus. And I was really interested in that class. And so before the class starts, I read the first chapter. But then I read the second chapter, and I don't quite understand what's going on. But never mind, pushing through. I read the third chapter, and I'm lost. Why is that? Because the first chapter had examples and it had a uh, uh, work uh, to do. And if you go and do the work so that you can figure out exactly what's going on in that first chapter, then you're ready to read the second chapter. But mostly we rush our lives along trying to get someplace rather than really getting the thorough knowledge of what's happening right now. So a basic way of saying then is is that uh, the first jhana is merely getting very good at reading the first chapter. Because if you can read and understand the first chapter, then the second chapter is possible for you. And you're getting the skills of the uh, uh, of the second chapter by reading and understanding and comprehending and working through the examples of the first chapter of the book. So this is what we're really working on is we're actually learning to read the mind. And so one of the ways of thinking about it is is that in the beginning, every student has the concept. These are my thoughts. I am this thought that what I am is this thought. And this is what I'm thinking right now. Later. By the practice that we're doing about investigation, we begin to draw back and say, wait a minute, I'm just observing the thoughts. I am not the thoughts. The thoughts are now an object, but the subject is the observer. But later on, then we begin to observe the observer and recognize that, no, there is no observer. There's merely observation. Now, in the Buddha, uh, in the Vasudhimagga, they talk about it from the sense of uh, that there is the walking, but there no walker be. There is not a walker. There is just merely walking. So in that regard, there is merely thinking, but not a thinker. And there is a let us say also we have a lot of commentary. That thinking is the commentary that we have about what's going on. And then we begin to recognize that there is commentary in the mind, but there's no commentor. There's no uh, uh, commentarian. And those are the thoughts. We recognize I am not the thoughts. Later, we recognize I am not the observer, that the observation is done. So there is observation, but there's no observer. The question is, is that, Who am I? And The answer to that is, that's the wrong question. In uh, Sutra number two, in the Saba Asava Sutra, the Buddha goes through this in the sense of talking about uh, what was I in the past? Who will I be in the future? Who I am now and how does who I am now get into the future? And how did the me that's here now get here now from the past? And all of those kind of questions he says, is looking for love in all the wrong places. I mean, that's a kind of a (laughs) paraphrase. But it is not wise attention. That one's wise attention is to look to see the dukkha. That means to wake up, to investigate, and to see that these thoughts are not wholesome. They are not nirvana. They are not cool but in fact, this uh, commentary is often commentary about what should be done. You set a set of rules or standards that we have, so that's what the commenter's job is, all the past that we bring up to compare the present moment with, rather than just experiencing the present moment as it actually is trying to make sense out of it and in order to make sense out of it we bring in our past we bring in our standards we bring in our goods and woods and goods and all of that and the first genre then is to stop the commentary uh, about uh comparing it to the past and start the commentary of what's happening in this present moment the actual true moment by moment blow by blow description of the breathing Oh, this is a good breath. Oh, I can feel the lungs move up. I can feel the lungs move down inside the chest. I can feel the cavity in the nose fill up with air as I'm breathing in. It warms and nourishes the air and the air gives me nourishment as I'm breathing in. It feels so good and so delicious. Taking that in-breath. So this is the kind of language that we would use that will get us into the first jhana without having to master it. That in fact, if we try to master it, we're missing. Because we're wanting something that we don't have. But when you become completely satisfied with this present moment, this is good enough as it is, sitting on the floor is okay, but I might be sitting on a marble or a baseball. I might be sitting on a, uh, a boot. <laughs> I might be sitting on a, you know, a, uh, a spike. And so we need to look at what we're sitting on and remove that stuff so that we can sit down comfortably. Another example of that is sitting on a gravel road. Who wants to sit on a gravel road? Sometimes at Watch Someone Milk, there's so many people that are sitting around that there's no place to sit except in the gravel. And if you can't handle the gravel, don't sit in the gravel. And remember, I mean, this is an actual event that it's better to get up and stand because gravel is uncomfortable to sit in. Especially some of the gravel they've got in Thailand, they don't get it down to that size. Some of the gravel's this big with sharp edges, and so um, the point is, is then we need to find a way of sitting to get comfortable. Because if we're not comfortable, then it's hard to endure, and that's unsatisfying. So that would be the first thing: is that you have to get comfortable. If you are comfortable, that's why I mentioned about uh, easy for the people to get into the first jhana is simply by sitting down in a nice chair at the dinner table. As you're in it for a moment or two. And then the mind starts up again. So, you've been in first jhana many times. You probably, every one of you have been in first jhana sometime during this conversation already. The question is, can you continue to operate with that to keep coming back into it and maintaining it and getting it to stretch out for longer periods of time without some uncomfortable thought coming back into the mind? And just allow it to be nice the way that it is, just to relax. And the next part then is start um, we use the body in the beginning, but the point is is that we're going to uh, bring about bodily comfort. and then we're going to bring about mental comfort together. And with the body and the mind together, we're going to now work on getting the feelings comfortable. And when the feelings become comfortable, now we have The three aspects, the body, the feelings, and the mind in unity. And one of the ways of getting uh, the mind comfortable is by having comfortable objects. so we're actually fulfilling the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana, within one breath. If you sit down correctly, just and you just go into it and it feels so nice to be relaxed, no work to do, no place to go. And everything is okay. Coming back to that state over and over again. Everything is fine. Everything is okay. What a marvelous breath this is. Wow, this air has got oxygen in it. It Keeps me alive. Still alive, folks. Still breathing. And everything is all right. So when everything is okay and everything is all right, we can now begin to eliminate the dialogue or the commentary about how everything is okay and actually begin to feel or actually experience that everything is okay. When we're actually experiencing how everything is okay, how everything is nice, this would be then the second job but it's harder to get into the second jhana. But an example, then, like the first jhana would be the example of, <clears throat> of reading a book. The second jhana would be what the martial artists call being in the flow. Have you ever heard that word, being in the flow? Do you know what it means? Well, the answer I, to that I
3: always was, thought it was jhana. Pardon? I always thought it just meant the first jhana.
0: Well, we can think of it like that, that if in fact the, uh, the boxer is thinking about the fight that he had with his girlfriend, he's going to have a whole face full of, uh, of uh, gloves because he's not watching what's happening in the present moment. This is one of the things that is good about training in martial arts is you've got to be here now and you're going to get hit you got to watch what's going on so that you can deflect those punches. If you can do that with the body, if you're fast enough to see what's happening so that you can make uh, appropriate changes in order to keep the body safe from getting punched in the face, then can't we do that with our own mind so that we can be fast, so that we avoid the punching that we're doing to ourselves, so that we can get out of the way of that And come back into a state of comfort. Now, what is an example of punching ourselves in the face? Oh, I've got to write that email to the boss. That's just punching ourselves in the face. Oh, oh, I've got to go to the bank. That's just punching ourselves in the face. Why? Because I'm actually not going to the bank. I'm just thinking about going to the bank years ago one of the things that i would do was because of the visa to stay in thailand it's a big deal you've got to have that yearly visa and it is really really complicated takes more than about 30 pages they want geox copies of your entire passport geox copies of all your bank statements all filled out letters from the bank letters from the doctor letters from the landlord on and on and on. OK, and so what would go on from me in my mind was she said three months before the visa was ready, I would start getting the stuff together in my mind, worrying about that visa. The visa is due in January and here is October and I'm worried about the visa. And. And and the weird part is, is that the the visa data, data that the uh, immigration wants has to be very current. You can't go get a a physical now in October and then present it to them in January. No, they want to be a, a physical that's been done within the past six days. Same thing with the bank state because people like to cheat. And so they want very, very current information. Well, if they're wanting very current information, why am I arguing about it with my own mind in October? And I just say, never mind? I don't have to do it now. But then that anxiety will come up. Oh, but you gotta get ready. But you can't get ready because it's not time to get ready. Any readiness that you do now is going to be old and unvaluable then. So, Regarding time you've done that? Is plan in advance doing something that it's not time to do it. Go ahead. Who said something?
4: Yeah, regarding that, um, instead of I see you, Mara, um, to try to make friends with that, I uh, tried the phrase, uh, oh, thank you for, no, like Mara saying, have you noticed this? And I'm like, hmm, let me check it out. Oh, it's okay. Instead of like uh, making Mara an enemy, it's like uh, something in your brain that tries to make you notice something. And it's not necessarily like you. You don't have to take it um, like a task. It's just, oh, what about this? Oh, okay. Well, yes, that's true. But you can
0: also think about it as kind of uh, an email that comes into the mind. Many of you probably have several email accounts and on every email account, you get a whole bunch of stuff coming in. Any website that you visit to, now they're going to start sending you emails. Anybody who's got it, okay. But many of the emails, for instance, um, Newsweek, New York Times, um, uh, Yahoo, they all send emails and all I need to do is to see, oh, this is news from Yahoo. And I just delete the email. I don't even have to open it. This is the way that you could say, aha, I see you, Yahoo. And I delete it. I don't have to open and read their email. When Huffington Post sends an email, aha, this is just more news from Huffington Post. I can just eliminate it. Or maybe read the subject line without even opening the email. So this is a way that we can do with our thoughts also. Thank you, Yahoo, for sending me the the news.
4: And out it goes. And when it's not a thought about the about the car, but it's let's say I'm focusing on getting my body comfortable and that's uh, where I came up with this phrase because I tried doing a bit of a vipassana scanning. In the way that, uh, not because scanning, because I wanted to scan mechanically, but let's say I didn't know exactly what was going on in my neck, and I take my attention to a neck. And then that taking my attention there kind of relaxes me a bit because I already checked and it's OK. Does that make sense or is it um, just something made up?
0: Um, well, we can now begin to think about the distinction between of the organized method and the natural method. The body scanning that is done by the Gawanka method is, uh, and by the way, they call it Vipassana, but it's not Vipassana because the real Vipassana is done in uh, the fourth tetrad of the mind's objects. But uh, in that first tetrad with the body, The body scanning is done by the students in that method in an organized way. It's done with sort of a guided meditation of starting at the top of the head and all the students are then uh, uh, sitting there listening. And one of the instructions is that if you can't feel the top of your head, then go ahead and touch the top of your head so that you can get a sensation going there and now put your hands down and begin and to continue to feel that sensation without the fingers touching it. Now, some people will call that a nematah. And in fact, that's good enough to call it a nematah uh, because fingers not actually touching the top of the head after you remove it, but you can still feel that. The same thing is true about the nematah for the breathing, that on the end of the outbreath, after you finish breathing, if you've been paying attention to the air coming out of the nose and the nostrils and when it stops, you can still feel that area of the nose. It's not really a nematah, this is real to where the nemata was developed over uh, a time before the Buddha where people would take a mental or excuse me, a visual object. That visual object would be called a casino, and there, one of the casinos would be a fire, like a candle or a, 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 a campfire. Another one would be water. The water can either be in a bowl or it can be in a river or uh, anywhere. Another one would be the air of the sky. An example of the sky would be stargazing, cloudgazing. How many of you, when you were kids, you gazed at the clouds? How many of you gaze at clouds now? You still gaze at clouds? Wow. Wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> okay, so cloud gazing, star gazing, fire gazing, water gazing, or casino gazing. The other one would be a mud disk. Or, a disc, or a, uh, an object about a foot around that is made by stitching leaves together. And then the idea is to take that casino and look at it closely and then close your eyes and then recreate the image in your mind that closely conforms to the image that you saw. Then you open your eyes again and check it out, reevaluate it, close your eyes again and make the new image in the mind very, very close, closer and closer to all the details of the mud disk that you have, the little stones, the little pieces of um, Uh, leaves or in our case, plastic, whatever is in your mud disk, that's to be uh, memorized and um, done that way. So that's the casino. What we're talking about here with the body is actually ordinary, real sensations because the body has sensory contact all over the place. And in fact, one of the ways that you can experience that is that when you start going scanning through the body, you can begin to feel the cloth. The cloth on the, uh, uh, for instance, Todd's got a very big, heavy jacket on. Can you experience the heaviness of that jacket that you're wearing? Yes, you can experience that. You can feel it. You can feel the rise and the fall of the body will uh, will touch the cloth Of the shirt that you're wearing so that the the shirt very very subtly rubs on the body as you're breathing in and out can you experience that this is what they teach in the guenka technique but there is another way of practicing not the organized method of going from the top down over the body looking at what's there till you get to the feet and then starting again another way of doing it is the natural method And the natural method is is sometimes even quicker and easier to do. But here, we're looking for tensions. We're looking for uncomfortableness. We're looking for not subtle touches of the cloth, but rather subtle tensions in the neck. So that we can relax that. Because the whole point of getting used to and experiencing the body is to be able to relax it. Here's another example. Everybody hold your hand up so that it can be seen on this video and hold it still. Just leave it there for a moment. Now recognize that most of you, and actually by holding it still, will add tension to it. Can you actually now relax the hand? just relax it and let it hold there and start paying attention to it relaxing rather than holding it still when we say hold it still that puts tension in but when we say just relax now that drains that tension out of it can you feel this what i'm talking about you can feel the difference between tension and relaxed all right so this is a way of looking at it is is that we're looking for ways of relaxing the body Not necessarily scanning to find every little detail. But then the Buddha also, uh, and this is in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, of talking about looking at the way that you use the hands. This would be part of what we would consider the walking meditation, which is another way of just saying an active meditation, like going to the toilet, brushing our teeth, eating our food. We use our hands. So a way of doing this is then beginning to experience picking something up. An example would be picking this up. So as I'm beginning to to pick it up, instead of just grabbing it the way that we normally do, because that way we're paying attention to the object that we're picking up. What we're going to do here instead is pay attention to the hands picking up the object so that we slow it down, we open our hands, and then we notice the first thing that touches. So it might be this index finger, it might be the baby finger, it might be the thumb, whatever touches it first, experience that, and then experience the other touching that goes when we're picking it up. And as we pick it up, we begin to feel what the hand is doing while holding the object. Similar true when we go to set something down. How many of you have been on, in, uh, coming into the house, go to pick up the phone, or go to the toilet? We're in a hurry, and we set our car keys down. Just drop it down, not having any attention paid at all. And then later, we go looking for the keys because we forgot where we put them because we weren't paying attention. So what this process does is start paying attention to what you're doing when you set things down. That in fact, if you do that, your whole life will become more organized because you'll begin to, instead of just dropping things or putting it down, you'll begin to say, where am I going to put it? Everything has a place and everything in its place. So now when you come in, instead of just dropping the keys off, you're going to have a place that you always put the keys so that they're always going to be there in their place. And then when you set them down, you set it down gingerly, and then you pay pay attention to how the hand moves so that what's the last thing that you touch? And then you withdraw the hand. So this is one of the ways of practicing jhana while you're picking up and carrying objects because you're paying attention to what you're doing right in the present moment as opposed to just dropping the keys because you're on your way to something. On the way to get the phone or on the way to the toilet or on and and inside the mind is a quality of hurry. So by doing this with the hands, it begins to recognize, wait a minute, why I'm in a hurry, I'm probably not going to pee on myself by taking an extra three seconds to be mindful of setting the keys down. So this is actually part of the practice because it's not necessarily jhana going to be sitting or happening only while we're sitting on the floor. We want to start practicing being in the present moment and being free from the hindrances because the freedom from the hindrances, which means freedom from anything that's going to prevent you from feeling the way that you want to feel. And we don't normally feel the way we want to feel. We normally feel the way that we uh, that the circumstances call for us to feel based upon our past habits. So we actually have a feeling system, and the system is an old system. And what we're going to do is begin to interrupt that by throwing the hindrances out so that now with the commentary or the uh, the nurturing thoughts that we're having, we can actually guide the body, the mind, and the feelings into the kind of body-mind-feeling moment, the state that you would prefer to be in. And as you experience this more and more, you begin to recognize that you are actually in control of your life, that you can feel the way that you want to feel. And the way, Scott, that you want to feel then would be called the first jhana. It's not to be mastered. It's to be just allowed, just to experience. So this is the easy way to do it. It's not complicated. It's not hard. We, we make it hard because we feel like that we're failures or that we're um, victims. That people, when whenever you're victimized, you will use the word like it's hard. This is hard to do. Well, it's hard to do because you're not a champion of it. You're the victim of it. But if you're the champion of it, then everything is easy.
1: Yes, Corey.
2: Hello. Hey, I, um, I had a question about free will and this whole thing because like, um, I've just been like looking into philosophy a little bit more and free will and intention is one of them. And so I've kind of gotten over it and it's not a really big deal for me anymore, but Like my understanding was that it uh, basically what we're doing is we're not really practicing choice. We're practicing attention. But then. um, I don't know, it just kind of seems like such a mystery, like, are we really choosing how we feel or are we focusing our mind in a certain way that doesn't allow those things to come up? And I think it's more about some kind of attention focusing and learning to use the mind in a way so that the negative stuff just doesn't come up anymore. Um, which isn't really making a choice. You're just kind of like focusing how your attention works um, by training it in this way. So like. I don't know, but for some reason, I just have this thing about choice and like my brain will like it just turns into like a negative thought storm. Um, so the, like, the way okay. that I make it is with attention or uh, something. All
0: right. Well, here's something that we can do then is we can look at it is, is that will or free will means that you do have choices. And that when you have no free will, that means that you don't have choices. This is an easy way to understand it. But the problem with the issue of free will is that it's gotten all religious and everything in the sense of God's plan. And destiny. And providence. So. God's plan, destiny, providence. If we look at that from a psychological position, then we can see that your destiny is your habits. That you are doing this and going in that direction. So when you go in that direction and you get wherever that direction leads, whatever destination those are, that's your destiny. But you don't have to have that direction. You have choices about which direction that you're going to take. The things are not predestined. Things are not providential. But rather, a better way of thinking of it, Corey, is things are in a cycle. And that which part of the cycle that we're on, we don't like it generally. But when we draw back and recognize that everything is just up and down, everything's a cycle, then we can begin to feel comfortable with things cycling. Rather than being uncomfortable with where things are on the cycle at any particular point in time. So drawing back and getting a larger view or a larger picture is part of the process to recognize That in fact, there is no destiny. You are not bound or uh, things are not already predetermined that they were ordinarily that way, simply because we were in the habit of doing that. Clear example of that is the cliche. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword, right? If that sword fighter keeps fighting, he's going to get old and some young buck is going to come and stab him. Eventually, that swordsman is going to have to put down that sword or he's going to die by the sword.
1: So the question is. Go ahead.
2: um, Well, um, the, the question mark is like kind of what is that? Phenomenon feel like when people talk about free will because I've been trying to like meditate and look on it and try to Experience something that feels like free will or choice and I've had experiences of kind of like Some kind of volition or like an an increased sense of me doing something or want to do something or the thoughts will make it seem like I'm doing something so there do seem to be this kind of like element of free will or a phenomenon that maybe appears like it. So, um, but it just kind of, I don't know. It's, so I guess the example would be that, like, are we supposed to, if we're in the present moment and we're just using our attention on the present moment, are we supposed to find out what we're supposed to do by somehow sensing that sense of free will or volition in the present moment? Because it seems like that it'll be there sometimes and not
0: actually uh that's a very good question and the answer would be no in the sense that if we are practicing correctly then we've gotten the mind fit for work and now what is the work to do with the mind that's fit for work is just to continue to observe just to continue to look that now we're taking deeper objects an example of the objects that we would take when in first jhana would be the features of first jhana in the sense of, am I applying the mind to the wholesome? Am I sustaining the mind in the wholesome to keep it out of the hindrances? Is this thought a hindering thought or is it a wholesome thought? That would be the work that we were doing. That would be the right effort. And so another way of saying it, then, is there's a distinction between no free will and free will. And in Anapanasati, we're going to say it's neither one. It's rather we have to say that it's expensive will, it's not free. What is the expense? The expense of the right effort that it takes to have free will. Because otherwise, we don't have free will. We're bound by the patterns of our mind. We're bound by the habits. What are the habits? Those are the habits of the hindrances. So will is expensive because we have to take fright effort. And in the beginning, that can be quite a lot of effort. The students uh, complain because, well, I threw that thought out and it came right back. The answer is Will you throw it out once? Can you throw it out again? The answer to that is, yeah, but it's going to take even more effort the second time than it did the first, uh-huh. because I had the expectation that the first time would have been enough. And now the second time I have to do it. And then a the third, oh, no, now it's getting to be a lot of work. That's not right effort. The right effort is to easily throw it out again. And then that thought comes back. Never mind. Throw it out again. And now we're beginning to gain the skill of of sati to catch the mind in an unwholesome state (laughs) and then uh, to see that it's in an unwholesome state and then to take the right effort to throw that unwholesome state out of the mind. Again, Eightfold Noble Path over and over and over again. The Eightfold Noble Method, here it comes over and over and over again, and it takes effort every time, but that effort begins to get easier because it's a skill to be developed. And part of the skill of the right effort and the skill of the sati and the skill of investigation is that we begin to do this and get the results of it so that we do feel safe secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And when we do that safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied over and over again, something new begins to happen. This is called the Sama Sankapa. And that is when the first three things run in circle around each other, they begin to build a momentum. And that momentum is the momentum of confidence, the momentum of I can do this, the momentum of actually recognizing that you do have control over your life, over your mind, that you are developing free will. And what that means then is a yippee, kayo, kaye, a feeling of satisfaction, a feeling of yes, got it.
4: Is there an important difference between the words safe and secure? Uh, not so much, but
0: there is a major difference between the uh, the terms safe, secure, and the word fearless. That often in the poly. Uh, Baya, which means fear, and abaya means not fear, is not translated into the feeling of safety and security. It's translated into the word fearlessness. And this was a problem for me quite a while because I I was seeing the fearlessness as the way of the warrior who is fearless in the face of battle. He puts on his gear, he puts on his uniform, he puts on his kilt, he puts up his weapons, and off the battle he goes almost triumphantly and happily. But that's still based in fear, still based in battle. And so what what, uh, fearlessness means then is courage in the face of danger. That's the hindrance, the danger and the courage in face of the danger. What we're really looking for is the the wisdom to see that there was no danger. Then instead of getting my battle armor ready to go out and meet my enemy, I'm going to get dinner ready for my friend. (laughs) Think about it like that. You've got no enemies. There's nobody's enemy. The only reason anybody is an enemy of each other is because they're delusional that enemies are delusional, that in fact we do have a basic understanding that that's instinctual, it's the nesting instinct or the herding instinct. And in English, we use the word in the sense of social, like social security, socialism, all of those words are really, uh, uh, let us say, uh, Republican Party talking points. But in fact, we are social, we are friendly, we do go to socials. We do socialize, and that friendship or that socialization is something that's almost being destroyed by capitalism, by being selfish, by saying, no, this is not money, not our resources. And so taking the, the frame of mind out of it that everything is a competition, everything is a danger, everything is a battle to be won, uh, and that that's how we get along in life. A better way to look at it is is that there are no battles. There are no wars. There is no competition. The only wars and competition that actually exist are between the ears. And when we take that competition out, then we don't have to be fearless in the face of danger. We can be comfortable and secure in the face of nothing. There's nothing to it. And so this is what we mean by then safe and secure is to make sure that we're not pointing at uh, courage in the face of danger. We're facing. We're looking at in fact relaxation in the face of nothing at all. There's nothing to it. Hmm. That that attitude of nothing to it also is the winner's attitude because the loser's attitude is everything is big, everything is powerful, everything is important, everything is dangerous. And that's how we were born. We were born as a victim. The parents were bigger than us. Do you remember having to hold mommy's hand where you had to reach up into the air to hold her hand? That's the victims. Mom wants to hold your hand because she knows that you're not capable of walking off
1: on your own.
0: Now, you have to be able to find a way of holding your own hand, but you do uh, holding your own hand in the sense of being satisfied, feeling safe and secure. And this is a major quality of the sukha, which is a major quality of the first jhana, is feeling safe and secure.
1: So... um, Go ahead.
2: Oh, I got a quick question like so the the things that we're doing would make the mind ready for work and then uh, could we go over investigation or like kind of. Because I don't think you're supposed to think or are you supposed to do any reflection in these kind of high jhanas, or you're just supposed to focus and maybe if it comes up great. I just feel like there's another state like insight or Vipassana that you're supposed. To, I'm actually not too familiar with that yet, but. um. Like, what's the other state? This calms you down? Is there another one where you're supposed to do thinking or investigation?
0: Okay. There is value in reflecting. But that reflecting has to be done correctly. In other words, we have to actually be here now, and then we can bring up an old thought with with the point that that's not me. Now, so think of something that happened when you were a kid, something that you got into trouble for, something that you were embarrassed over. And I'm playing a game right now by using the word you. Now we can go and we can reflect upon that is that uh, that happened. for a child as a child, but I'm no longer a child. I am not the one who did that. So whenever you have regrets and remorse, the reason that you have regrets and remorse is because your position now or your standards for your own behavior have changed. When you did that thing, your standards were such that it allowed that behavior. And then maybe somebody called you down for it and immediately you changed your attitude about that behavior before, it seemed to be perfectly okay to do it, and now it's unappropriate to do it. But instead of feeling the remorse, we can feel the relief. Wow, I'm glad that's not me anymore. That will help to maintain that position of being in the jhana. But if you have a thought or reflection from the past, and then it's like an ouch, or oh no. Or maybe it's a thought of, uh, uh, an example of that was, At one time, I had a BMW R69 S. It was a really, really fast motorcycle for the day back in the late 1960s with those horizontally opposed twin engines. 750 cc, lightning fast. And I don't have that bike anymore. I lost it. (laughs) Poor me. I was better off without that bike. So now we're reflecting upon lost merchandise or lost friendships. Instead of being able to say goodbye to that pipe, I want to bring it back. I long for it. So when we're longing for the past by reflecting upon the past, that means that we're not in the first genre. We're in a state of longing. We're in the sort of wanting it again. Okay. So the point then is, is that reflecting does have some value to you because now... You're uh, using those reflections of the past to help you maintain the point that you're okay right now, that that's in the past. Let it go. Mostly, we don't need to do much reflecting. But a better way of talking about it is let's use a, uh, let's call it a story. And maybe we can even call it a Dhamma story. That we can actually learn from our past, that while wow, it was not a good idea to behave that way, I shall not behave that way in the future, that in fact, that's the one way of getting over remorse. I'm sure of you, all of you would say, yeah, in the past 24 hours, or at least in the past month, you have had thoughts of remorse over anything. How many of you have been completely remorse-free for the past 30 days? <sighs> Nobody, okay, so... Remorse, that is actually then attachment to I was that thing in the past. Recognize that the remorse comes not from the bad behavior itself. It's that we attach to that bad behavior as if it were still me. And the way to deal with that is when those thoughts of remorse come up, we can say, number one, that's not who I am right now. And number two would be sort of, and I now have the full intention with my free will, that I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to refrain from doing that. I'm going to use that behavior as a precept now for myself. And by doing that, we can congratulate ourselves for I've made a new choice. I'm going to refrain from robbing banks, bombing Ukraines, and owning BMW motorcycles. I'm going to refrain from those things. (laughs) And then I can feel pleased with myself because I've got new higher quality standards. So that's how we would deal with remorse is by uh, making sure that, number one, that's not me who did that. And number two, now I do not approve of that uh, behavior. And number three, I'm going to refrain from doing that in the future. And when we make that uh, a reformation, then we can take delight in the fact that, wow, I'm so glad that I am free from BMW motorcycles. (gasps) Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Eric, you had your hand up for a moment. Both of you, Eric's. But Eric Ramez still has his hand up. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, uh, regarding that, um, you mentioned that, like, Even you uh, experience grief like for a natural amount of time. Is remorse, does remorse have the same quality that there's like a natural, let's say healthy experiencing of it or can you just cut it off directly? Let's say you were driving a car and you ran over someone. (laughs) Can you cut off remorse directly or does it naturally and healthily linger a bit?
0: Um, actually, you wouldn't have to actually run over someone that in fact, the running over of someone was because you didn't have previous remorses that you needed when you ran over a dog or you ran over a stick or you ran into a pothole. If you had remorse over running into the pothole, you could say, all right, when I'm driving now, I'm going to drive safely enough so that I can avoid potholes. That's what makes a really safe driver, safe drivers, because he's watching to not hit anything. And here you are going around hitting potholes, hitting sticks, hitting dogs, and now you've hit a human being because we did not learn from our past mistakes. But if you can learn to avoid potholes, you more than likely are not going to be killing pedestrians. Most of you don't uh, 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 avoid potholes, and that would be a good one. Now, everybody can say, yeah, I've run into potholes before, (laughs) and sometimes it damages the car. Maybe I should uh, refrain from hitting potholes. Maybe I should be so mindful of my driving that I can either slow down or drive around the potholes, see them far far enough in advance. But that's another thing that I learned when I was a kid. Um, uh, I had a friend, we were in a small town in South Carolina and, uh, we had a game that was called the cops. And the point is, is that you've got to see the cops before he sees you. If you can see the cop before he sees you, then we can get away with anything. But we can take that to the Dhamma to recognize that if you, for instance, the pothole, if you can see the pothole far enough in advance, if you're looking out at things, then you can see things coming. That's what we mean by drawing back or getting away from it is we can see things in the distance. If you see someone shoot an arrow at you and you can see the arrow in the air, uh, let us say 100 yards from here, then you've got plenty of time to get out of the way of it. If you see that arrow coming at you from only 50 yards, you've got less time. If you can see that arrow flying at you, but it's only 10 yards away, you've got to move pretty quick. But if that arrow is five inches from you, you don't have a chance of getting out of its way. So looking at things far in advance, you can actually see when somebody's about to insult you before he actually gets the words out of his mouth. and so you can get prepared in advance so that you can get out of the way of that insult that you know is coming at you in the next 10 5 4 3 2 sec <sighs> bang
2: and it gets you so oh, what do
0: you pardon
2: what would you do what's the like psychological or how how would you um because essentially there's like a million and one different things that are going to knock you off course so how would you Because what I feel is like a drop in my gut. I feel like I feel kind of a vibration and an energy there first. And then bad stuff happens. So I could feel that. Let's
0: stop for a moment. A million and one things. Is that grandiose or is there actually a million and one things?
2: Well, I mean, it's like, I don't know. There's 50,000 things and there's 50,000 other things. And so, like, it's Uh, just... But they're
0: almost all microscopic. The things that are bad that are happening are quite a few. But when you're a victim to a few things, you will call it a million things.
2: I guess it's more about just unknown things. There's a lot of things in life like that or something.
0: Ah, but but here's the point, too, is is that all of the unknown things that are unknown now are probably not dangerous the problem is is when we think that all of those unknown things are dangerous so it's not all of those unknown things now it's the feeling of danger it's the feeling of being victimized by a million and one things rather than it doesn't matter how many there are i can handle them but yeah. this is an attitude change because believe me, there's not a million and one people chasing you down the street. They only chase you down the street one at a time.
2: I mean, I get what you're saying. And so I guess if you're feeling that way, that must mean that you're somehow not in a you're in a not good state. And so like when you feel a certain way and you could feel like the insults coming, you're supposed to drop into like a kind of first jhana inside the body pleasant moment or um. Present moment, pleasant mindfulness. Well, that, that would be a very wise thing to do. And it would
0: be, because it's wise, a good training for you to get into. That's why it's so valuable for you to be able to get into the jhana quickly. I guess the getting thing
1: into the jhana
0: that... means stepping out of the way of the
1: dukkha. Yeah. And I mean...
0: calling it a million dukkhas is just feeling like a victim. But in fact, a better way of talking about it, the way that the Buddha talks about it, is one by one as they occur. Whatever this mind moment has, one thing at a time, one by one as they occur. And that, in fact, it's the name of the, uh, the sutta. It's number 111 in the Majjhima Nikaya. One by one as they occur is where Seraputa is actually in First Jhana. And now that he's in First Jhana, what is he going to uh pay attention to. He's going to be paying attention to what's happening right now, one thing after another, one by one, as they occur. So the first thing that occurs with jhana is going to be applying the mind to the wholesome. The second thing that's going to be happening, sustaining it a little bit. So you have applied and sustained thoughts. So in the first jhana, this is the first thing to look at: is applied and sustained thoughts. Once we have the mind applying and sustaining thoughts, we're going to have pity and sukha. Once that pity arises, now we take that as an object. One by one as they occur and as we're taking pity, which means that feeling of um, being a champion, the feeling of well-being, the feeling of I've got this wired, the feeling of everything is just fine and I can handle things really well. And so now we take that feeling as an object. And we begin to experience how nice it is. And then we recognize that that, too, has a lot of energy into it, and I can relax even more than that. So one by one, as they occur, is how we practice this. And here you are talking about a million and one things. Other than just one thing at a time, just one by one. Whatever we're going to do in this particular moment, whatever is in the mind now, that's what we need to deal with. And so in your mind right now is a million and one things. That's what needs to be dealt with right now is the million and one things to recognize. No, I don't have to do a million and one things. I can only do just one thing at a time and I I can do it well. Then I'm going to be satisfied with it. And if I do it well and am satisfied with it, that gives me the confidence that I need to recognize I can handle any one thing at a time as it comes by. One by one as they occur, not a million and one. <laughs> a million and one is grandiosity coming from uh, the feeling of, of fear that I can't handle a million and one thing rather than the confidence of I can handle one thing at a time.
1: Robert, you got your hand up. Sorry about that. I was on mute. Um,
3: Yeah, so I'm wondering um, what are your thoughts on um, silencing all discursive thoughts as a practice?
0: Pardon? What, What kind of discursive thoughts?
1: All of them. So no well, sort of thinking at all.
0: The first thing that we do with discursive thoughts is choose which discursive thoughts we're going to have. Most people think that, oh, I've got to get rid of these discursive thoughts. No, you can't get rid of them. You don't have that skill yet. But you do have the skill to choose which discursive thoughts you're going to have. So if discursive thoughts about the visa come up. You can say, hey, I don't have to do the visa right now. And that's a new discursive thought. Wow, I don't have to do anything right now. That's just a discursive thought. But then the feeling of I don't have anything to do right now is a feeling of relaxation. (sighs) I don't have anything to do right now. But you see, the problem with these talks is, is that I have to do it in discursive thought. We have to do it by giving you guys concepts. That's the hard part is to give you concepts to teach you how to stop having concepts, and the way that we do that in the beginning is by saying, no, we're not going to stop having concepts, we're going to start guiding our concepts into wholesome concepts. Hmm. And Um, how we do that is by making friends with our uh, unwholesome concepts. Aha, I see you wanting to go to the bank again. Aha, uh-huh, I see you wanting to uh, have an argument with Aunt Susie. Or uh-huh, Aha, I see you wanting to uh, write an email to the boss. Aha, uh-huh, so aha, uh-huh, I see you, and then we recognize right now I don't have to do it. And we know that we don't have to do it right now because we're not doing it right now. If we were writing that email to the boss, then we would be doing it rather than just be thinking about it. So recognizing that our discursive thoughts are almost always orders for jobs to do. Okay, so it's like the plant manager that's more interested in the orders that are coming in, and he is not interested in the work in progress that's happening right now. So let's start changing our focus in our discursive thoughts from incoming into the processing of what's happening in the moment. That's another thing that Corey was mentioning that we can go back to. His million and one things is all of the stuff that's on his list out into the future. Rather than the discursive thought that we're having right now, and the discursive thought that we're having right now is, oh, there's a hundred or there's a million and one things. And so, seeing that there's a million and one things is the, th- the thought that we have, we can say, wait a minute, there's not a million and one things. All we have to do is have to pay attention to the one thought that's happening, and that one thought that's happening is there's a million things. <laughs> I've got
2: an interesting phenomenon. Um, so I said, like, when you get over dealing with the million and one things, the next phenomenon that comes up is when you listen to the present moment. Another kind of voice will happen. It, like it seems like it's a different, more powerful intelligence, and so what well, it is, finally, wakey, wakey. Thank you very much.
0: Let's have a more wholesome, uh, wise thoughts that are wholesome. The power is in the wholesomeness. The million and one is an unpowerful position. It's the victim's position to be in. Wholesome thoughts are powerful. They put you in the position of being a winner, to put you in the position of being in charge of your life, that you do have the ability to make the changes. So a million and one things means that I'm uh, the victim of these million and one things. I'm not in charge. The million and one things are in charge. And I'm a victim to all of that. The answer to that is, look at that one thought that I'm a victim of a million and one things. Then we can throw that out and have the new thought instead of, well, I can handle one of those million and one things. Let me handle that. Like the thought of a million and one things is just one thought. And I can handle that. So I can begin to change these thoughts from unpowerful, unwholesome thoughts. Thoughts that keep us victimized. Thoughts that keeps us in a one-down, with the underdog, that something's on top of us, and we can change that into the mentality of, no, no, I am not the bottom dog here. I'm just laying on my belly, on my back, with my belly exposed. All I have to do is just stand up correctly, and now I'm no longer exposed. Mm-hmm. That's
1: a
3: so, great uh, analogy.
1: Ahead, I was just
5: wanted to say
3: that was a really good analogy about the dog that's laying on its back with its belly exposed. and feels victimized, but it can it can just stand up. It's it's all in its head.
0: Yes, all you have to do is just stand up right now. You're powerful again. That you're not the victim to a million and one things. That you're a vi- you're the victim of the thought. There's a million and one things. That's what makes this so easy, guys. This is such an easy thing to do. And we always make it hard by thinking about a million and one things. (laughs) Torrent factor is only one thing to do. And that is, is to change this unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought. But that's all there is to it. To wake up, to look at that unwholesome thought, and to change it. Take the effort to change it into a wholesome thought. And those three things run and circle around each other until we begin to get the, um, uh, the attitude that, hey, I can do this. I can do these three things. And now we've got four things going on. We've got that attitude that I can do it. Guess what? That attitude is what makes the effort so much easier now. There's hardly any effort to it at all when you have the attitude, I can do this. But when we start off in the position of a victim, meditation is hard to do. And, oh, their thought comes back again. Oh, there's a million and one thoughts that I've got to get rid of. You know, those are the kind of thoughts that we have. But if we can see those and take the effort to throw that out, we can recognize, oh, I got rid of that one thought. There's a million things. Just one thought, a million things, and I throw that out, and I say, now the thought is I can handle one thing at a time, just one. I only have to handle one thought at a time as it arises, one by one as they occur. And when all the unwholesome thoughts are out of the mind, thou the one by one that occurs are all wholesome things. When the mind is really fit for work, the only thing that we see is wholesome. And what are the things that we see? We see pity, we see sukha, we see comfort. We see relaxation, we see uh, satisfaction, we see success, we see um, um, equanimity, we see that we've got a balance here, that we can handle things easily enough. Then we begin to see, oh, that is my perception or is my um, thought patterns of a million and one things that winds up creating my feelings. And it's also the wholesome thoughts that create my feelings of feeling good. Maybe if I don't have any thoughts at all, either wholesome or not wholesome, then how will I feel? The answer to that is really relaxed.
2: (laughs) So the thing that like really is um, curious, because that's actually what I wanted to another question I wanted to ask is that when the thoughts begin to get very, very wholesome. And it's they I kind of not sure if because, like I said, it sounds like um, if you listen to the present moment, like a voice of wisdom will speak to you and you'll have kind of experiences or images. And so. Like the kind, I've been wondering, like how those relate to am I supposed to do those things or are they like are they images from a kind of higher power that I'm supposed to do or lessons or. Does that have to kind of like.? They are when you are a lower power. That's what I say
0: they are. They do come from a higher power when you're a lower power, which is just (laughs) an attitude of a loser. Oh, there's high powers up there. There's a million and one high powers up there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But when you recognize, oh, no, there is not a higher power, that, in fact, if it is a higher power, it's the higher power of the instinctual mind over the power of the
1: wise mind.
0: So, in fact, you could say that the higher powers are actually what you're victimized by. Well, the will thing is that, it on, like
2: a bigger version. On your own?
0: Go ahead, go ahead.
2: No, that was the thing is that it feels like a bigger version of me, or like a wiser me, or a, and I get the kind of, I guess I just use the, um, like direction because it does seem like that. It, because it seems like we're identified with the instinctual self, and then the real right. self is the bigger one, and so like kind of. I don't know, it's just so weird to feel like something is part of you. It's like a split mental kind of, um, I don't know, it's just like a weird splitting with the sense of self and like kind of.
0: I know that's the whole idea then is, is that I will congratulate you from going from the victim self into the higher self. But then you begin to recognize that that too, is just a form of selfishness. That, in fact, a way of looking at it, a very clear understanding is, is that you're not the thoughts, that you're different than the thoughts. In the beginning, we think, I am the thoughts, so or these are my thoughts, or I'm victimized by a, a million and one things. I am the one who is afraid of a million and one things. Then we draw that out and say, wait a minute, that's just a thought. I am not that thought. And by saying I am not that thought, that means now we have full control over that thought and we can change that thought from an unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought, like one thing at a time. I can handle one thing at a time. So that's a new form of selfishness. But it's much more wholesome than the old form of selfishness because the new form of selfishness is the selfishness of the winner. But then later, We get to the point of recognizing, hey, the winner and the winner's attitude, I'm not that either. I'm just the observer of the winner's attitude. And then I recognize even later than that, that I'm not even that observer. There is just merely observation. And then that leaves the question of, well, who am I? And the answer to that is. That's not the right question to ask. That's an irrelevant question, who am I? Because you're a completely moving a target. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel I am that thought. There's a million things. Sometimes you feel like the thought, I can't handle this. Sometimes you feel like the thought, I'm the observer of this. And so who I am is all over the place. And you're never going to pin it down. It's like putting your own uh, uh, eyeball under a microscope. You can't do that. It's like a camera trying to take a picture of itself. A camera can't take a picture of itself. It can with the aid of a mirror, but then there's not a taking the picture of itself. It's taking a picture of a mirror image of itself. And so the Buddha recommends it's not appropriate to ask that question of who am I or what is the self. Because what is the self is constantly a moving target. Even asking the question of who am I is a different self that's asking that question of the one who was saying, oh, there's a million things. Different people. And you're a moving target. The real question to look for is what's in the mind. Is that dukkha or not? Is this unsatisfying? Is this unwholesome, and believe me, a million and one things, that's dukkha
2: it's grandiose
0: it makes you feel like a victim
2: that's the thing that was the thought that it was like I didn't recognize it was grandiose because the wholesome thoughts if you get if they come just right then they will seem that they're very true and that it's like some kind of vision or some higher like your higher self talking to you and giving you lessons but it's actually some kind of uh grandiosity that's happening because the state is unbalanced in, like, the positivity or something?
0: Okay, well, let's change the vocabulary slightly from higher and lower, which is judgmental, into the quality of noble. So you can have noble thoughts, which would be then uh, transcendent or locatara or above the situation. A little example of that, is is that uh, one of the students years ago told me this, and I thought that it was so great I should use it more often. And that is is that each one of us is an emperor of our own pile of dirt. (laughs) The question is, are you going to be buried under your own pile of dirt? Are you going to be on top of your own pile of dirt? Or the third option is, are you going to be struggling trying to get out of your pile of dirt. Now the ordinary mind is just buried under a pile of dirt. Meditators are struggling to get out of their pile of dirt. The correct practice of Anapanasati for the dude is to recognize you're already out of your pile of dirt. But it's guess... just a pile of dirt. It's your yeah. past. That in fact, it's your own shit that's turned to dirt.
2: I guess, composted. yeah, it's just confusing because at the very end it seems like a pile of gold and it's it becomes very hard to throw all the because essentially, like the wholesomeness, well,
0: there's got to be a pony in here someplace with that pile of shit. There's got to be, and with all that horse shit, there's got to be a pony in there
2: someplace. I know that's that's hope. I guess it's just a bad habit of because the thing I've just been kind of driving been feel like i've been being driven crazy by was like somehow craving or clinging that somehow i noticed that i have like a rising sense of agitation and like kind of it seemed like the wholesome thoughts were kind of aggravating it like i was just kind of feeling more lopsided and like kind of welcome
0: you're waking up that's great congratulations Keep with the whole point about that you can make changes, congratulate yourself. Begin to develop the winner's attitude that you can handle this. One thing at a time, you're okay. One thought at a time. Very few people can have two thoughts in the main at the same time. A good example of that is the scientist He was working on deep biological stuff. Maybe he's an archaeologist and he's digging up all kinds of skeletons and things from the past and um, uh, dinosaurs and whatever. But then on Sunday, he goes to church. There they talk about something else. They talk about the earth being 6,000 years old. How people can take and keep those two thoughts in their mind at the same time. Actually, they don't. They have one thought, and then they forget about that one, and then they have a new thought. So the, the scientist is not the guy who goes to church on Sunday. You would think it's the same guy because it's in the same body, but it's a completely different person.
1: You're a completely different person.
0: Do you think From that the time that-, that you breathe out, you're one who's breathing out. And then the breath, in-breath, and you're a different person doing the next in-breath.
1: You're a completely
0: so- moving target. Everything is in constant motion, constant turmoil, including who you are.
1: There's nothing permanent. The question is, do you have the
0: willpower to change? Is your will enough? It may not be free. It may be quite expensive. You may have to put some effort into it. And what is the effort? To change it from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. To throw it out of one, uh, there's a million and one things, So that thought out and put in, well, I can handle one thing, one at a time. Robert, your hand is still up.
1: Yeah. Um can
3: the mind um focus on two things at once pardon can the mind focus on two things at once
0: no and i had a big argument with myself one time about that because i did not start with pcs i started with mainframes okay a pc can only do one thing at a time. Well, actually, more specifically, a central processing unit can only do one instruction at a time. But now Intel has quad-dual processors, which means you have eight CPUs on the same chip, each one of them doing just one thing at a time. But because of the multiprocessing part of it, it can have one program in one chip and another program in another chip and another stuff going on back and forth and that Windows, the operating system, will manage these processors. Okay, but each processor only has one instruction at a time. The human brain is like that. That, in fact, if you understand consciousness, consciousness correctly, you can see that. That consciousness is dependently arising, and you can only be conscious of one thing. You can be conscious of the bird behind me, the cuckoo, cuckoo. Do you hear it when I'm talking? Yeah. Okay, yeah. guess what? When you do hear that bird, you move back and forth between the bird and my voice. You do not hear them both at the same time. You either have one or the other, but you can move back and forth very quickly.
3: Right. Um,
0: So students talk about having background thoughts. No, you don't have background thoughts. You were thinking this and then this thought comes and then this one. And this one you thought is in the background. No, it's gone, but it comes back and then it's gone again. And then it comes and then it's gone. It's always in the front, but we call it background because it doesn't happen that many mind moments. But it's either this or it's that. And so this this is not in the background this way. It's just this is the only thing there is, but then this one comes in, and then it's out, comes in and out. And we call that being in the background, or in fact, it's not in the background. It's just momentarily coming up. If you start watching very closely, you'll see that. You'll see that you can only have one thought at a time, but it only is there for a tenth of a second or so. Matt, you got your hand raised.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say it's really easy to see this happening like when you're driving. I don't like people talking to me. I don't like to talk because it takes away attention from driving. So I'm spending more mind moments like trying to talk to someone instead of focusing on what like, what I need to do. And you can see the same thing happening when you're like looking at your phone, like browsing the news or whatever, and someone's trying to talk to you. You, you can't do both at the same time. It's like it's it's just back and forth. It's too hard to do both.
0: More it's than annoying. You'll, you'll get like annoyance coming up. Absolutely. Okay, so let us say that you're, uh, you've you got your cell phone and you're on YouTube, and you've got a video that you want to watch and to listen to. And three, three seconds or three minutes into watching that video, what are you doing? You're scrolling, looking for the next video to watch. Guess what? While you're scrolling, you're not watching the video that you were watching. The video that's playing on the cell phone and the words that are being spoken on that, you're not paying attention to. You're only paying attention to, and you can only pay attention to one thing at a time. But the mind is jumping like this all over the place. Boom, 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 boom. When we can get it stable and keep it very stable, then when it booms, we can see that. When it goes up there, we can bring it back. And it goes off again, and we bring it back. And it comes here, and we bring it back. It comes here, and we bring it back. And it goes there, and we bring it back. And pretty soon, we can stay focused. And then something happens, boom, and we come right back. But normally what happens is, is that we go off in there, and we stay a moment, and then we go over there, and then we're over here, and then we're bouncing back and forth. And that's what, Robert, gives us the delusion that things are happening simultaneously is simply because our attention is slow. Here's an an actual example of that, is, is that if two archers are both aiming their bows at the same target at the same time, standing side by side, and they both let go of the arrow at the same exact instant, will those arrows reach the target at exactly the same instant?
3: Yes, hypothetically.
0: No, not possible. Not possible. Depends okay. upon what you define as the same instant. If your same instant is one in one minute, then that's different than are uh, 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 the same second. How about the same tenth of a second? How about the same nanosecond? When you, when you get your time frame, you can recognize that in one time frame, things happen at the same time. But in the time frame like this, that happened in that time frame, not in this time frame. The things don't happen simultaneously, they happen one by one as they occur. Thank you. That's, now there's um, a, that's a whole lot of tough, things tough. out there, going back to the processor, there's a whole lot of processors, each one of them doing one instruction at a time. So our world is filled and we have the delusion that there's a million and one things out there, but inside our own mind, you only do one thing at a time. And it takes and about a 10th of a second.
3: 10th of Go a second, ahead. right. So the present moment is, um, well, this. so the present moment is, um, is sort of like, like, just like a, um, like a, like a, like a 10th of a second vibration that's just happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right.
0: That 10th of a second vibration, by the way, is called alpha waves.
3: Really? That's
0: fascinating. Yeah, I I've, yeah, done, fascinating. Uh, I've
3: done alpha binaural beats before. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. So that's the alpha that's wave. Different and, different. and they know for sure that that alpha wave is not always at exactly the same frequency. That some mind moments for some people take uh, a second and a half. For some it takes, um, not a second and a half, it takes uh, 15% of a second rather than a 10th of a second. For others, it takes 20% of a second. You and I were talking about that, about your reaction time, and your reaction time is now about 250 milliseconds. That's two mind moments. One is to see the screen turn from red to green, and then the second mind moment is you're actually clicking of the mouse. So your mind moments are at about um, uh, 15th of a, or maybe 1.25.
3: That's uh, fascinating.
0: Twelve and a half percent of a second. Right, so can you speed up your alpha waves? This actual Anapanasati is a practice of developing the skill of getting a reaction time faster and faster.
3: Yeah, that's one of the things I like about um, about just trying to silence thoughts in general. Um, I, I, I mean, it, they're not really silencing wholesome thoughts. I just mean verbal thoughts because you have to move so fast to, to get the thought as soon as it starts and keep it to just the um, before, it, you know, the mind says like a full word and uh, it, mm-hmm. it's quite engaging It sort of keeps you on your toes a bit.
0: Right. Language, in fact, is quite slow. How many mind moments does it take for a whole sentence to come out of my mouth? And how many mind moments does it take your mind to take in that sentence and then make sense out of it? Yeah, hundreds. Hundreds of mind moments sometimes, exactly. And so now what we're doing is beginning to look look at it. How quick can we catch that stuff? Because the slower we are at catching it, the more mind moments we're going to have in Dukkha. One, One moment after another, mind moment after another, mind moment until we catch it. Then we can make that change. Like, how many moments can we spend thinking about there's a million and one
1: problems that need to be solved?
0: Eh?
3: Too many, far too many.
0: Too many, too many mind moments of, of too much happening. Instead, what we can do is we can say, no, let me be fast. Let me wake up. Wake up quickly. Wake up strongly. What I mean by waking up strongly so that we can then take the effort to make that change so that I don't have to have unwholesome thoughts in the mind. I can take them and make them
1: wholesome. That, that's what makes it all so easy. Is that all we have to do is to wake up and to remember and make a change. Wake up and remember to look
0: to make a change. Wake up and remember the look make a change over and over and over again. And pretty soon you can begin to see the mind doing that too. And as we do that over and over again, confidence begins to build. There, um, yes, go ahead. There seems
3: to be this function of the mind to um, focus in on certain um sensations at the exclusion of others. Um, so I'm not always taking in um, the entirety of the, the present moment all at once. Um, I'll, I'll only be taking in like some, some uh, tingling in my elbow and sort of ignoring the rest of it. But I'm, uh, I'm guessing because. Um,
0: well, one mind um, moment, right. Then we can right, move right. that mind moment to something else. That's the whole point. That once we learn how fast the mind is and how much control of it we are, we can, in fact, be able to manage a whole lot of data coming in and processing it quickly. Uh, Actually, there is a kind of game that the Theravada monks play with each other. And that is the game of uh, sneaking up on someone. Chun Ho played that game with me and he played it at a heavy duty level because he would stand out in the front of the yard of my coochie and wait to find out how long it took me to look out the window or to figure out that he was there. Could I feel his presence? And that was a major skill that I've learned. So now that that nobody can come in the yard without me knowing it. If I'm in the house, people can come into the yard because I'm not paying attention. But if I'm out on the porch, there's not anything that's going. I'm going to be missing. For instance, when I'm talking to you, I can still hear the cicada. I can still hear the whippoorwill. I can still have knowledge that the dog is sitting right here. In this case yes, tracking, yeah. but so
3: even though the mind only looks at one thing at a time, at a tenth of a second, the size. of place. I'm, I'm sort of, the, what?
0: Mm-hmm. I'm
3: sort of uh, the size of that attention. The size of our sphere of. Of what that one thing is can change, right? Like that one thing could just be tingling, or it could be the whole present moment, or it could be. So even though there's not two different things happening at once, the sort of the sphere of the sphere of uh, attention. Um,
0: yeah, and so aware. the ordinary mind is not aware of that, and so we talk about things happening at the same time, or simultaneous, or background thoughts, and all of that kinds of stuff. But once we gain the skill of being able to keep the mind steady, that means that we can, in fact, let it go over there and then come back because we're now in control of the mind. And in fact, we can use that speed of the mind to our advantage to where before, when we had no skills, the speed of the mind was to our disadvantage. Right, because right. Because we have the skills, We can make that quickness of the mind become a part of our awareness. So how do I know when Tam is coming? I don't know how I know that she's coming, but many times I know that she's coming within, let us say, a half a second or so before she becomes visible. Because out at the yard there. Uh, there's trees and houses and and whatnot like that, and she comes down the road and then makes a a left turn into the property. I know that she's there before she makes that left turn. I can't even see her, but I know she's coming.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: How do I know that? I don't know how I know that. But I do know that if I'm really paying attention to what the computer's doing and stuck in that, I'll miss her. But if I'm just open and aware, then something happens, and I know it immediately. So this is part of the training that we need to go through, is the is the training of being open, literally, to all kinds of things that are happening, one by one as they occur, but they're occurring at a very, very high speed rate.
3: Yeah, I've, I've noticed that some sort of start to happen as my practice has developed where at first, um, when there's a lot of unwholesome thoughts, lots of hindrances, my attention has to be very restricted in order to ignore all of that and focus on wholesome. But as things become more and more wholesome, I, I can sort of expand it up until it's very, it's very open and inclusive. And uh, yeah, exactly,
0: exactly so. So here's it's much more
3: exact- as well.
0: Here's an example that this is the meditation object and this is the focus on that object, Okay, And the most of the people are this way all over their life. They're just all over the place. And we don't recognize that. But when we start focusing on that object, then when it's moving around, we begin to notice that movement because we're not focusing on it. And so as we begin to get the mind more and more and more focused, it comes to rest. And then when we can draw back And we can begin to see more and more and more because we've got the mind stable but when the mind is all over the place and the world and the reality is all over the place we miss a lot of stuff but when the mind is very stable all of that stuff is happening we can see it now that's a complete distinction in this anapanasati practice than what we would call concentration meditation because what the concentration meditation is is they want to get it and they want to push and they want to get it, and when they get their object, they push and they push and they push and they push, and, they push, and they're just ignoring the whole world.
5: Mm.
0: Mm. Okay. So what we need to do is to be able to touch our object very lightly, and then draw back from it. Right. That's yeah. what makes things so easy. Is, is that this is samadhi. This is an inclusive practice, not a um, not a exclusive. An exclusive practice is a concentration practice. We're not excluding anything. We're opening to all that's going on, but we have to do that by getting the mind to be stable. And how we do that in the beginning is by making the corral, to get the, the, the animal corral into the wholesome.
3: And then it does whatever we want when it's when it's wholesome and it's happy. There's no effort to control it because you know, why would it why would it want to do anything else? It does what we tell
0: it to. And then life becomes a breeze. It's easy peasy. There's nothing to it.
1: You got it wired.
0: That's the way of having that attitude of you can handle this. There's nothing that you can't handle because you only have to handle have to handle one thing at a time. Guys, we started off with uh, 14, I think, was the top. And now we're down to eight people to leaving. And I recognize that that's because we've been running at two hours and 15 minutes. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that we had been going talking this long. This feels like five minutes. But I also recognize a whole <laughs> lot of stuff's been going on for the past two hours and 15 minutes. And so let's go ahead and, and um, finish now. And I'll see you guys later. This has been a marvelous talk. Thank you very much. I especially appreciate Scott, and Corey, and Robert for their, their questions and, and whatnot. Uh, and I also see that Keyshawn and Parker and uh, others are still online. So I wish you all a very happy moment. Thank you. To you. Okay, we'll see you later, guys. This has been great. I really enjoy this. This is so great. <laughs> What a bunch of good friends we're collecting together. I think this is so marvellous.
3: Have a happy moment.
0: Have a happy moment.
5: <laughs>
3: See you,
1: everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.